I thought if I can write a book that explains everything from start to finish of what's going on, what the pilots are doing, what the refueler does, what the um, airport manager's doing, what the operations centre's doing. There's a lot of this stuff people don't even know happens. You know, like the medical equipment we've got on board, it's like paramedic level, uh, and all the different checks, the thought processes. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. Another fascinating guest today. All my guests are fascinating, but I like this one quite a bit because I've been, I had a couple of pilots. I think I had one pilot so far, but I've wanted a younger pilot. Adamos Marneros was a fantastic man, but he was already, uh, he's not flying anymore. So this time it's actually somebody who is in the middle of his um, flying career. He is a duty director of Virgin Atlantic's Operation Control Center, and he's a commercial pilot flying on an Airbus A350, a long-haul pilot. But he's a lot more than that. I noticed him because he's also a fear of flying coach and an author. And he has a military career, 18 years of uh, in the Royal Air Force. We'll talk about all that. Let's start. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Simon Belmont. Hey, Elizabeth. I've been looking forward to this. What an introduction. I hope I, um, I live up to it. I, I listened, hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to um, the podcast with Captain uh, Moneros a couple of days ago. He was what a fascinating guy. Um, yeah. Superb to listen to. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so yeah. Let's flying <laughs> was different. I think flying was different when he started. Flying has changed a lot. And um, it's quite fascinating because sometimes when I'm sort of a bit cheeky and I'm, I go to the front of the plane and I see the pilot there and I say to them, you know, shouldn't you be in the cockpit? And they say, no, it's not necessary because the plane flies itself. Yeah, it. Um, we often fly with three pilots, so you will often see one of the pilots kicking around the cabin on their break. And because we fly um, long haul for Virgin, who I fly with, um, we're flying, you know, 11 hours with an eight-hour time difference with only uh, sometimes one night if it's a quick turnaround, mostly two nights there for rest. And you are, um, you know, it is a lot on the body on the body clock and uh, fatigue-wise. So for safety, we have three pilots uh, and it allows us to get about three hours each rest. We've got two two beds for the pilots and there's I think there's about eight beds for the cabin crew down the back as well so you can get rest just so no one's fatigued at the other end when you might have to land in fog or whatever so yeah you'll see pilots kicking around the cabin and um they're quite open to questions and chatting it's quite nice to meet the, the customers and the passengers I've always wondered a little bit about that sleeping and that resting period can you sleep on command can you learn like now you have three hours and you have to go and sleep or is it more just resting Everyone's different, really. It depends what you've been up to, what how you handle time differences. Some people, um, their method of dealing with it is to stay on local time, like UK. So if you go to New York and back, you'll find that some people will actually go to bed when it would be bedtime in the UK, and then they'll force themselves up. Uh, and that way, it doesn't adjust their body clock so much. Others will just make the most of the time they are down route, and they'll just sleep when they get home. But depends on home life as well. I've got a little toddler running around, so um, I can't sleep on demand at home, but I, I can sleep on demand at home uh when I'm at work I'm sorry so yeah because you're exhausted <laughs> yeah and sometimes just the three hours that you get just just to be out of the flight deck and not listening to radio calls and not checking on weather and not checking all the systems and and all of that just to get a little break from it it's like any job you sometimes just need a little break away so that sort of anywhere between an hour and three hour break um just means that you're fresh when you come back when it when you've got an 11 hour day and you've got to remember there's a 
There's about an hour and a half crewing before that. It's about half an hour to an hour to shut down the aeroplane at the other end. And then most people don't live right by the airport because it's so expensive. So you've got the commute to work as well. So it ends up being quite a long day. So yeah, that three-hour break really re- recharges the batteries and, mm. uh, and keeps us all healthy and safe. Yeah, I guess it's just switching off for a bit. Now, let's start from the beginning. I want to know, when were you on a plane for the first time? How old were you? My parents, we moved around a bit. My dad was a journalist in the BBC and he had a job in Canada, a job in Norwich. So from an early age, from about two or three, I think, we emigrated to Canada, lived outside of Toronto for uh, a few years. And then we flew. So we'd, al- we'd always fly back and forth to the UK to see family. Then we moved to Norwich. Uh, that was more car journeys and stuff. And then obviously the holidays. But I just remember... You, you don't really remember too many memories, do you, from when you were a toddler sort of baby? But I just remember being on aeroplanes. And then I remember when I started to think about what was going on, just looking out of the window in, in complete clouds. And then next thing, seeing the ground and the aircraft landing and just thinking, how does this happen? You know, the, um, and then my first, I think my first interest was with air, a lot of people say, oh, it was Top Gun that made me want to be a pilot. But I think air traffic control was one of the the first things that got me in, interested in flying. How does this aeroplane with 300 people on it? land you know when they don't see the runway till 200 feet above the ground so it was sort of air traffic initially that got me interested and then it was uh, a granddad who took me to a flying museum in the northeast of England quite often just for a day out because uh, he he'd worked on Rolls-Royce engines when he was um, in his sort of 20s and 30s so he had a love for aviation as well so yeah that that sort of really sparked it and then obviously Top Gun <laughs> for everybody I think makes every um everyone want to be a pilot at some point uh, when they watch yeah it. I actually saw Top Gun on a flight to New York it was uh on I don't know I think it was a Balear was an airline that doesn't exist anymore but it was in their um in-flight entertainment program and I saw it there yeah fascinating yeah. so you became an um a military pilot you trained with the RAF, right? Yeah, I had an, an interesting career sort of uh, route, really. As I say, I'd, I wanted to be a pilot all in the back of my mind. But then um, when I started to get to sort of teens, I was thinking about being a dentist because I just thought a pilot was like, you know, being a movie star or something. It was out of reach and not it was too much money to train. You needed, you know, £80,000 to do it. And I knew that we didn't have that sort of money. Um, so yeah, I went for dentistry and then my A-level grades sort of defined that I wasn't going to become a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thankfully, um, pilot selection, they have their own aptitude tests. Obviously, they want you to have a baseline education and pass at certain grades, but they're not asking for AA a- stars and everything. They want you to have a brain that thinks logically, that can solve um, complex issues under real stress sensible decisions, communication and all that. And the fact that you've got an A star in maths, although that probably means you're a very clever person. It doesn't mean that you've naturally got all of that. So they test you in their own way. So then um, I wanted to join the Air Force. So I obviously went straight for the top and said I wanted to be a pilot. The initial medical came back and said I had hay fever and that that affects your how you can clear ears and deal with pressure. So they said, you can't be a pilot. Um, so then I went for air traffic control because that was my initial love. Uh, I went for selection over the three days and they test you for everything. And I was about 18 or 19, I think. And you literally have to be a born leader to get through at that stage to be a, a commissioned officer. Cause you're going to look at, you're going to have to 45 year old men and women who've done 20, 25 year careers by then. And you're effectively on paper, their boss. So 
So yeah, they said, you know, you're not quite up to it. You're very good in a lot of areas, but just some of your leadership needs working on. Go to get a degree and then come back. And I thought, well, I could spend three years doing a degree and I might not necessarily then pass in three years and I'm now stuck with a degree that I might not be able to use. So I said, are there any other jobs? And to cut a long story short, they said, um, go for a ground job as an engineer. So I went for it and went for tornado engines, sorry, for a jet engineer. So I got through the training, ended up being a tornado jet engineer. And I was in a hangar in the northeast of England in a, a military base there where the tornado fighters used to scream over the top of the hangar. And I think for three or four years, every day, I used to think, I want to be flying them, not fixing them. This is an amazing job, but I want to be flying them. So yeah, I was lucky enough to be selected because of good grades that I got on a technical course to go for an, uh, a Philip Sassoon award, it was called. And that was the top, top, six technicians they would put up against each other alongside officer selection again so this is about four four and a half years into the air force and the best ones would win a private pilot's license and the idea was you'd learn how to fly a plane and then you'd go back to being an engineer and now you have a better understanding of how the plane flies and what the pilots are up to but if you're good enough they also look at you for airman air crew pilot engineer and officer what have you and i was lucky enough to to win it and get um a, accepted as a pilot into the Air Force then, so switching over from an airman to an officer. Uh, and I remember they got me in and said, oh, look, you've you've won the award. Congratulations. We'd like to offer you a job as a pilot. Um, however, the second person was an engineering officer. Would you mind if we gave the award as PPL, the private pilot's license, to them? And that means they can be a better engineer because we're going to train you to be a pilot anyway. So I was like, yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> so, yeah, there's an, there's an engineer around somewhere who, who can now fly a small plane um, Thanks who, to you. Uh, <laughs> well, not to me, but yeah, a, a little bit, I suppose. What, and then, happened, yeah, what happened to the hay fever? Um, it went as long as you were three years uh, symptom and treatment free, and it seemed to be sort of just a teen thing that I had. Okay. Um, it, it sort of passed and got me through the medical then. And then, yeah, my uh, I went through all of the training and um, ended up achieving that dream where I ended up being one of the pilots flying over the hangar in a tornado for a little while. Uh, so I did about five years fast jet flying, flew the Hawk that the Red Arrows fly, not in the Red Arrows, but the same jet in training. Uh, and then the Tornado F3 for about eight months and then ended up transferring over to bigger aeroplane, the, the C-17. So yeah, it was quite a, quite a varied it's career. A, it's <laughs> a dream. It was a dream of it yours. Was, yeah. Yes. And, 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 is it still a dream? Do you still believe? Is it? Do you still love it as much as you thought you would? Oh God, yeah. It, um, the the flying's just fantastic. It's. I mean, I'm glad I got it out of my system to do all that low level flying and the formation stuff and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then some of the military the military background, which I had some real good highlights. Um, but then, yeah, I always wanted a sort of second career in in the airlines. Um, if I could possibly make it. And then, yeah, here I am. Very, very lucky boy. I don't, there's not one day I get up and don't think I'm very lucky. <laughs> That's so beautiful. I, I think, you know, it's, it's um, a calling. I think it's the kind of thing that you really, really, um, you either do it and you enjoy it very, very much, or you're not made for it. Because yeah. I want to talk about you flying for, for the, for the government, for the British government. Yeah, as part of that uh, military role, I was a Boeing C-17 um, training captain. So I used to train uh, others to fly it. And um, and I'd, I'd had an operations job on the squadron for about three, four years of running the operation while being a pilot as well. And then uh, various sort of government jobs would come up. They'd, some of them were non-government organisations. Um, some of it was sort of aid relief 
um, support. Some were um, anti-drug stuff in the Caribbean. Others were the mil- military side of things. And then the odd government thing came up, which the highlight was for me was um, flying the uh, being chosen to fly the prime minister, um, which was yeah fantastic flight. It was David Cameron at the time, and it was um, it was all a big deal. It was it's his first flight into Afghanistan to meet Karzai, I think it was the Afghan prime minister for talks, the first time ever. Um, and yeah, we um, I remember it was late at night because he'd come direct from some award ceremony. So he got on board and he was about 45 minutes late. So we left late. And then when we arrived into Afghanistan, there was a huge sandstorm coming through. So I had to make a decision. Um, I remember this coming up in my airline interview, actually, because they asked when have you had to make a difficult decision and what talks took us through it. Um, and I said that I had the prime minister on board and um, I had to make a decision to make him even late, you know, even more late, that I was going to hold off to the north of the airfield at altitude where it was safe until the sandstorm had passed through because it was daylight and, you know, the, it was it was quite a dangerous area to be landing an aeroplane into. Um, so we held off for another 45 minutes, um, gave the justification why, and then we made a safe landing in and off he went. And uh, I remember them saying in the airline interview, so um, what made it a particularly difficult decision and how did you communicate this to the prime minister? And I said, well, because he was sat behind me on the flight deck the whole time. So um, he sat and listened to the whole decision-making process and uh, and the justification for it. And I explained that it was, you know, the safety of the airplane, the people on board, because there was a lot of people on board as well, and him, that it was the safest thing to do. And he agreed. And I said, I'm very sorry, it's now going to make you about, I think it's about an hour late because we'd made up some time, but now I was going to throw some of it away. And yeah, he totally understood. It was great. But it was quite a precious scenario because in the opposite seat to him was the uh, chief of defence staff, who's the guy in charge of the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, the lot. So I had sort of two of the most powerful guys in the country sat behind me making one of the most difficult decisions. You know, it was, um, it was, yeah, it was quite a, quite a tricky decision at the time. But, you know, th- this is an interesting thing that you're saying here about, OK, he was an hour late. But I often, um, you know, sometimes when a plane is late, when I'm sitting there and I see people are getting aggravated and they start complaining and they start complaining to the ground staff who can absolutely do nothing about it they are just there and I I sometimes I I let out this smart phrase you know I, I always say well I would rather be an hour late and save than get on a plane that's not properly checked or get on a plane that's and that always shuts everybody up because that's the truth isn't it you know it, it is yeah we we don't cut corners in aviation it's all it is all completely safety driven um we run along lines of um safe, legal and commercial when we make a decision. So the first thing is safety, everything drives that. Uh, and then after that, um, so obviously it has to be legal and within the regulations and all the rest of it. And then is it commercial as well? You know, or do, is it going to get the most of the people to the place where they bought the ticket from? And, and that all comes into your decision-making process. But yeah, it's, um, it is it is frustrating when things are delayed, but, and you're completely right. It's just, I think it's our job now in commercial aviation to make sure that we understand that People have got somewhere to go. They've got family and relatives. They've got meetings. They've got weddings to get to. They've got a holiday they're excited with. They may have dragged their children on a short haul flight across Europe to get onto yours. And it's just all about the communication and sympathizing with people and um, and just trying. I think if you explain it in the right way, then people understand and it sort of calms them down a little bit. You do get the odd person who's just, you know, everyone has a bad day and we have to just take that on our stride. You do. Of- and I have noticed 
post-COVID people are more a little bit more aggressive. They have less, they're less patient. I don't know if it's because they are, I don't know, maybe more afraid or I don't know what happened, but I have noticed that lately that people have less patience or people maybe are just too more, more busy. But let's go back a little bit to David Cameron. Where else did you go to? What was like, Afghanistan must have been the most exciting place. Did you stay there? Did you get to stay or did you just? Um, um, no, we tended to. We tended to um, fly in and land just for a, a few hours while we offloaded whatever um, a helicopter or the people or supplies or what have you, um, just quite quickly. And then we'd get out of there and go to like a staging station outside of um, outside of Afghanistan. Mm. Um, so no, we didn't really stay there. But um, it is a fantastically beautiful place, you know. And I've read a couple of the books on it, The Kite Runner, and I yes, think there's and I, I actually Land of a did Thousand a Suns, or yeah. Um, and it was a quite a, it was quite a place for. Um, in the 60s and 70s for people to travel to, wasn't it? Um, Beautiful. I did a tour. We had a trekking and, uh, what was it, incentives and trekking uh, department at Kuonia. And I did one tour in North Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. Absolutely beautiful. beautiful. It is. It's beautiful. And the, the people are very friendly, the ones that you meet. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a real, real beautiful yeah. country. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. how did you transit from the military to becoming a commercial pilot? When were, were you... How, did you have enough of the government? What what happened? So yeah, so you um you fly under sort of a military license, which doesn't allow you to fly commercial aeroplanes. So you end you fly around the world all these great big four engine Boeing aeroplanes, kind of like a jumbo jet, but you don't actually hold a license to then leave outside. So you do have to go through all that again. So although you're 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 qualified um, in everything. You still just need the bit of paper from the Civil Aviation Authority. So you end up having to do 14 exams. So that's quite intense. Uh, and then there's the whole interview selection. So luckily I had a few friends who'd gone to um, the, the major airlines already and they'd sort of recommended me and put me forward. But then you still have the selection process. Thankfully, I was uh, successful with Virgin. That was the um, that was my real dream shot that I wanted. All my friends who'd gone there had loved it. And it was just like, you know, the dreams that all I'd followed um, Sir Richard Branson all as long as I can remember and all of his successes and successes and amazing companies that he'd, he'd, he'd made. And I was just like, I really want to work for those, you know, uh, obviously I had British Airways as well. And I, I wouldn't say no to any airline. I just think it's the most fantastic job, but that was the dream. So yeah, I managed to achieve that and um, absolutely loved it. It was, it was a finish on a Friday from the Air Force and started Virgin on a Monday. So yeah, I had no time off. It was straight into it. Then yeah, I never looked back since. That was uh, that was eight years ago. So yeah, it's flown over. And you that's flown amazing. over. <laughs> so you got the job you wanted. Did you ever have Sir Richard Branson on board? Yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of nice pictures with him. He'd um he'd flown into the UK to do some sort of deal with his um I think it was Virgin Galactic. Um, so yeah, they'd, they'd pass some sort of deal. I uh, can't remember what the exact details were, but he was in real high spirits. Um, so he was flying a party back to America, uh, and I chatted to him and he's great. He, he, you know, the stories that you hear, he, he gets on the PA and he talks to the passengers. And I remember hearing stories when I joined that he would answer the phone in the headquarters of Virgin when he first started it. And, you know, he would, he'd be chatting to customers and he's like that. He did a PA on board and he, he stands at the, we had up a class bar at the time on, on the airplane and he was standing talking to all the passengers. He speaks to the crew, takes the pictures. He came into the flight deck on the ground because even though it's his airline, he's not allowed in flight because just pilots are allowed now. Um, but yeah, on the ground, he came on and he chatted to us and we got pictures and stuff. Yeah, he's a 
great guy. So yeah, I think you know. Obviously, I have no idea, but from you, you see people, and when you know people a little bit, you can usually see who is hands-on and grounded, or who is uh, yeah a little arrogant and doesn't want to have anything. So, what is your favorite flight? Where do you like to go most? I've had a little think about this. This, I mean, we only really fly to amazing destinations. We genuinely do. You know, we, we I flew to Lagos in the last few days, and that's a rammed flight. The, the people are so friendly and interesting. And when you're driving through um, Nigeria, they're just seeing the sights. It's amazing. The food's fantastic. So you know, the, but but then we obviously get the Caribbean, we get the American destinations, the Far East, South Africa. There really isn't a bad destination. And I think the main thing really is that. I've picked up over the years from Air Force flights and commercial flights is that you can be in the most fantastic place. But if you're with a crew that are staying in, they're off shopping or everyone just does their own thing, you can be quite lonely in the most amazing place. And I've, I've stood over, say, the Grand Canyon or whatever, and I've seen sights and I've thought, God, I wish my partner was with me. I wish my kids were with me. I wish my dad and my mom or my brothers, sisters were with me or best friends, you know. And um, and then there's other trips where you're in a real rubbish place in a porter cabin in the middle of you know a desert somewhere with nothing to do and you've got a great group of people and you just have the best time um and i think yeah that that sticks with me for every flight that so um luckily the airline i work for there's most people have got great spirit and they want to do stuff and there's always someone who's organized a a, a sightseeing visit a shopping trip sports tickets you know somewhat they know somebody's got a boat so let's go out on, on my friend's boat or there's a million different things so yeah they're they're all fantastic in their in their own ways and it also depends what mood you're in and how tired or what you've got going on in your life as well you know sometimes there's nothing better than just in the middle of manhattan just having a chill out day going getting a bagel quick walk around and then relax in the room and watch some tv and sleep it's um yeah, they're, they're all different for different reasons. Yeah, and the good thing about your uh, size aircraft is that crews are big. So there is always different kinds of people. It's not just a few. And and you always find probably find somebody who, who wants to do the same thing like you do. We have between about, what, three and 400 passengers, depending on the fit of the aeroplane uh, that, that I fly. So you can chat to the passengers. Some of the people I've spoken to are fantastically interesting. And then the crews as well. There's quite a lot of the cabin crew have got a lot going on um, with little side businesses or just the jobs that they've done before. I've met people who've been in the CID of the police and they've retired. And for five or six years, they just want to join the airline as cabin crew and see the world with some young people. Other people who've got big, really successful side businesses and are quite wealthy. But again, they're they're doing it because they love it. Um, and then the flight deck, the the pilot, the the um, all the pilots that I fly with, again, they've got amazing backstories of helicopter oil rig flying. They've done crop dusting in Australia. They've done uh, delivering medical supplies in Africa in little uh, aircraft. You know, there's anything and everything you can think. So every every day you come to work, it's uh, it's fascinating who you're going to meet, what connections you're going to make, who you're going to talk to, what you're going to talk about. Uh, it is. It's, uh, I it's love it. the world. It's a little world on its own, isn't it? And it's a beautiful world. It's kind of a fantasy world. But I was just, just when you mentioned the Grand Canyon before, I was um, on a tour as well with Kuoni and I, we were not allowed to say that we were on the, on the tour the first time. We were supposed to be experienced, obviously. Yeah. But I was on a tour when I got to the Grand Canyon for the first time and I walked to this rim and I I just, I was just going to say, oh my God, I've never, yeah. But of course, I had to say, oh, you know, it's, it looks like a <laughs> <laughs> so, 
There are many, many fascinating places in this in the in this world where you really where you, where you're and where you you're in Cyprus, aren't you? I'm in Cyprus. Yeah, yeah. I spent um, I spent a couple of months there. It was it was um, brilliant. It was in the middle of flying, and the flying courses in the Air Force don't quite go from you finish one and start the next. A few weeks later, there's sometimes big chunks, so you become a holding officer for a while to get experience. And I saw this coming at the end of each course, and I thought I can either get stuck somewhere, you know, putting in. Chronological Air Force copies of the RAF news, or I can sort out a hold somewhere decent. Um, so yeah, I got in touch with someone at Episcopi in Cyprus at the airbase there, and said, "Look, any chance I've got a hold coming up of at least two months? Can I come out?" And um, I got a, a place at um, at Episcopi. So it was someone at Akrotiri who'd put me in touch with someone at Episcopi, and I just worked up there in the ops centre for a couple of months. But I lived in a flat in Limassol. You had to live in the officers' mess. But my boss said, you don't want to live up here. It's on the, it's a beautiful place. It's on the side of a mountain. But you want to be down in Limassol where, you know, everyone's out and partying every night. Um, so get a room in the mess. Book somewhere downtown. I won't say anything if you won't. And yeah, we went down there and we met some expats and some um, Cypriots who owned bars. I used to sit and drink for free. And, you know, it was it's just... I live in Limassol. It, yeah, it's it's a very interesting, diverse place. Uh, when was that? Um, Which year that, was that? That was um, that will have been about two thousand and three, something like that. I think. Have you been back since then? Um, no, you have to come back because Limassol has turned into Dubai, little Dubai. They've start they've started oh, building it? all these high rises. It's really, really fascinating how Limassol has changed. There was always a lot of money there, wasn't there? From yeah, um, well, it's also there's all sorts and, of money here. Yeah, there's uh, all sorts <laughs> from everywhere. But the, my favourite memory from Cyprus was the food, the meze, the meat and fish meze. Yes, oh my God. Yes, yes. Yeah, I love living in Cyprus. I've been living here for many, many years. I came here as a tour guide. I met my husband here. My husband is Cypriot. Ah, okay. No, it's so, a, it's a uh, and my place. kids grew up here. It's a beautiful place to bring up children because it's small and safe. And uh, yeah. yeah. So another thing that I want to touch, and that is an important thing, you are a fear of flying coach and you're writing a book you haven't finished it or have you is it, is it no great? no it's um it's almost towards the end of the first draft um the idea with it was that um i was going to do two books so i was going to do um one book that educates everyone from a pilot's point of view of of the things that passengers do that don't help themselves um how pilots are trained how aircraft are built from the ground up all in very i think what I hope I'm good at is taking extremely complex situations and scenarios and making them really simple, easy to understand and comparing them to everyday everyday um, experiences so people can understand them very simply. Um, so I tried to do that because I believe that a lot of people who are scared of flying are just anxious. They, they aren't scared of flying, but they don't understand what's going on. And I think that is a bit of a, a lack of communication from the airline industry or the travel industry as a whole. We just, we sell tickets on board airlines and we sell the dream of the business meeting at the other end, the holidays, fears visiting friends and family, you know, or whatever sort of a once a lifetime holiday you want to go on. Um, and we talk about getting to the airport and then you get off the aeroplane, but nothing really much in between. And then the first thing the cabin crew do is give you an emergency <laughs> demo of what and happens when you land on water and it catches fire. They tell fire you to and, leave your hand yeah. behind. And, it, that's always, that's yeah. my 
phrase exactly. that I've heard the most. And I, I always think, would I really leave my handbag in that? Yeah. <laughs> and it's a very alien environment, um, really, when you think about what people are used to. It's it's reasonably claustrophobic. They're a lot bigger now, but there's lots of different sounds, noises, feelings in the body of the, the thrust, the changing attitude. You've got no real visual references other than outside a little window. So I really do understand why people are really phased by it. And some are terrified and some are just a little bit un, uh, nervy about it. So I thought if I can write a book that explains everything from start to finish of what's going on, what the pilots are doing, what the refueler does, what the um, airport manager's doing, what the operations center's doing. There's a lot of this stuff people don't even know happens. You know, the medical equipment we've got on board, it's like paramedic level uh, and all the different checks, the thought processes, all the redundancy in an aeroplane that, you know, it can fly around in one engine, no problem at all. It's not ideal. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we fly um, in a very safe aircraft with lots of backup. And I believe that if we educate people, a lot of those people that are scared of flying won't actually be scared anymore. They'll still be the people who have a natural fight or flight, you know, panic attack or anxiety. And, and um, it'll still help them a little bit as well. So I thought part one, if I write that, and then part two would be coping mechanisms and the psychological side and all that sort of stuff that I could research. And then my brother said, when the, when someone wrote the four hour work week, they didn't do part one, the two hour work week, and then part two, the second two hour work week, be the go to book. So I was like, that's a really good idea. So yeah, I went from almost finished to write. I have to write book two in book one. Um, so yeah, I'm about 45, 50,000 words in with a little bit more to add to it. Uh, it keeps growing all the time because you never stop learning, do you? So oh, yeah. I, keep, I keep putting little top tips and snippets in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's where it came from. And the coaching side comes from the fact that I was a training captain. So I've done lots of different training courses. So, you know, I, I think I can qualify myself as a coach without going on a, a uh, an actual coaching qualification. It's um, because I do, I actually do. I'm a hypnotherapist and I do fear of flying hypnosis. Ah, okay. And um, one of, I, I know that it, it, the people are, it, it's losing control. It's not being in yeah. control. And I never understood because when you are sitting in a car as a passenger, you're also not in, in control. Okay, you can open the door and run yeah. outside, but but it's not, this, it's probably just a big thing because it's you are, you can't do anything. No, no. And it's all relative. You, um, I, I quite often say it to a lot of people who who come and talk to me and ask me to talk them through, you know, if you, you're triggered on an aeroplane to feel every little bump and rumble and noise, and I say, you know, next time you're on a tram, a train, a boat, a car, a bus, you just concentrate on how much your body's being jolted, moved, the noises, you know, and, it, and it, it's very similar to turbulence in an aeroplane. And then I explain, obviously, that turbulence isn't dangerous, how high you are, that you aren't at risk of hitting other aeroplanes, you know, nowhere near i think when we're at forty thousand feet you can fly over the himalayas and we're still two kilometers above the highest mountain so you know people think if i drop a thousand feet it's terrible that doesn't really happen in airplanes we hardly move it just feels like you're moving um, but yeah try and make it all relative to to um to calm people down give them some perspective and hopefully they listen to those words i get a lot of feedback from my social media channels saying oh my god i've listened to all of your videos and i've got on a plane for the first time in 15 years uh, there's a lady in the east of canada who was flying to vancouver with her daughter she hadn't visited her daughter for five years because she moved there for work and she was saying it was it was the words of the video and it's nothing new there's a there's a lot more qualified fear of flying coaches and experts than i am i think it's just the the simple way I've done it and I've used social media and tried to really simplify things. And I think it's just luckily that I've spent a lot of time speaking to passengers who are nervous. Whenever the crew say mm-hmm. we have a nervous passenger, mm-hmm. I always go down and talk to them. And, and honestly, it's, it's, 
it's quite amazing how just a five minute chat, they'll say, oh my God, I've traveled for 15 years. I've been terrified of this noise or this sound. And you've just explained it to me in five minutes. Um, and any pilot could, I, I would, I would really, really recommend that any pilots mm-hmm. listening to this do that whenever they get a nervous flyer, because a lot of them are quite easy to help and, and cure. I know. And I think, um, you know, you're mentioning these noises and there are a lot of weird noises when you are actually this, you know, this, yeah. when they, I don't know when they close the, the, the luggage compartment or whatever. I'm absolutely not afraid of flying, but I do hear these things. And I sometimes wonder what on earth is this or what is that? And there is something that you said now about speaking to the passengers. And there is something that I am missing on flights because in the good old times when I was young and when I was a tour, when I was flying a lot, the pilot used to tell us where we are and they would point out and say, you know, on the right side, you can see the town or whatever. And now, I don't know, is it the passengers that don't want to hear it because everybody is listening to something, everybody has earphones, or is it safety? Are the pilots not supposed to talk so much anymore? What is it? I no, no, we, um, we we generally do if there's something um, really stand out. I think it's come from years of, well, it's the one, I think it's the development of sort of in-flight entertainment. People are, um, and now have a TV in the back of every seat. Well, certainly on our airline yeah, and they can cool. watch movies, audio, they yeah. can actually look on an interactive map and t- tells them where they are. Yeah. Uh, and then others are, they pay a lot of money to, to get um, on the airplane to start with, you know, because it's long haul and then they pay extra money for the nicer seats. And some people are, flying to business meetings and they need six hours sleep or seven hours sleep because they've got a huge business meeting others have just got their babies off to sleep others so it's trying it's trying to keep everybody happy and i think it's just sort of make it's a judgment really is it during the day and everybody's awake and actually saying the himalayas are out the right hand side of the window is a good thing you're not going to disturb and then others it's nighttime babies have just got to sleep people have paid to sleep and now we're going to wake them up to tell them that we're flying over vegas on the left hand side (laughs) Um, so yeah it's a judgment call so i think that's why you don't hear it as much yeah, I understand. It makes a lot of sense what you're saying, really. And and as you say, I'm talking about the times when there was no, there was just a little music at the end of the flight when you were getting yeah. up to play and everything else. There was no in-flight entertainment. We had a book. And we're very lucky though we see it all it's you know I, I never i never take it for granted that some of the sites that i see out of the window are just i was just gonna insane. say i mean you've got the best view you must be seeing the and most. we have huge windows on the a350 it's like the biggest windows of any air, airline yeah, and it's, you see it's like for yeah. me a, a sunrise or a beautiful sunset are always i mean that's always amazing but we see rocket launches um of the actual shockwave with uh, in the dark uh, of rockets launching with a shockwave coming off the nose. And this is, these are huge streaks in the sky. And the, the sun's obviously the other side of the planet lighting it up. So you get some amazing light. The northern lights, as I say, just flying over big cities and seeing how huge they are and how vast it is. You know, you fly and how big some of these countries are. You know, we hit Morocco and then we've got another nine hours to South Africa. And you think, my God, or you hit the East Coast of America and it's, it's still another five hours to the West Coast, flying at five, 600 miles an hour. You know, the earth is is enormous. So we're already coming towards, I'm just looking at the time, we're coming to the end. How will be people be able to find that book and how can they find you as a coach? So yeah, the the um the main, I think the name that I'm going to go for is Flyphobia for the book. So um, that's what's, to look out for when I try and push it out. But I've got uh, a TikTok channel, which is um, Flyman Simon. I'll put the link. I will put the link. Yeah, Flyman Simon A350. And I've got got, got a TikTok and an Instagram. There's about 
65,000 followers on TikTok. So that's the big one. A couple of thousand on Instagram that I'm trying to build. So you can you can direct message me on there. Find me on there. Direct message me on there. Watch the videos. Um, you can always email me. And in those um, two platforms, Instagram and TikTok, I've, I now have a link to an e-commerce store called The Stand Store. And on there, there's a couple of free uh, little mini books, e-books. I've done one on um, how to a pilot's top tips, 10 top tips to jet lag recovery. I'm just finishing pilot's 40 top hacks to travel. So all the things that I've learned and heard from cabin crew pilots and passengers over the years all put into one place. Uh, you can get that there. The book will be pushed on there. Um, and then I'm in the process of, I've bought this equipment and a nice camera and stuff to do a fear of flying course eventually. And then some one-to-one coaching and what have you. So yeah, just have a look on there. And um, I'm sure if you follow me, you'll, um, I'll put the updates out. Fantastic. We'll put the links in the show notes. And also there is something that I, some trivial information that I have uh, about uh, flying i read somewhere that you would have to fly 19000 years every day to end up in a plane crash that's a long time yeah it's the the figures are, are, are ridiculous the statistics are just they they say without a doubt it's the safest form yes. of travel and it's because yes. of all the regulation the safety the backup the training everything and what i do try to say to people is that someone who's nervous or fear of, have a, a fear of flying, when they get to the airport, they build up, they build up, and then the tension rises. And then on the aeroplane, they're terrified or they're scared or they start to get a panic attack. And I say, at the second you're at the airport, that is the safest place you can be. You've just taken the, the most dangerous journey uh, by, by a long, yes. long stretch. No matter what yes. mode of transport, you have just taken the most dangerous part of your journey. Because once yes. you're in the airport and you're on the aeroplane, it's you know, it, it's extremely, extremely safe. We um, and, we train in the simulator all the time and they take multiple systems from us, which statistically is, you know, almost impossible, all of those systems. And the aircraft still flies like, a, you know, perfectly well. And it can fly for, for hours and hours on end. And it, and it's a big, it's a big Cessna at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a big, it flies like a big single engine piston aeroplane and you can still fly it like a pilot. You just, some systems may be degraded and uh, you may lose some functions, but it's a perfectly safe airliner to land. Uh, and we prove that all the time in the simulator that no matter what they throw at us, we we get it to a successful conclusion. And it's realistic. It's not a computer game. You know, it acts how the airplane acts. So, yeah, it's, uh, it is ironic that people are terrified of the flying when, <laughs> but they'll, they'll jump in with uh, any driver or, you know, on any mode of transport and they'll not think twice of uh, the dangers of that. It's just a mindset, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's all in the mind. And all this coming from a very, very experienced pilot. Yeah. I mean, you've been you've been flying for many, I, many years. I have to say one funny thing that's just happened. My fiance's cabin crew and her grandmother's just uh, come over to, to visit us to say hello. And I said that I was going to come on your podcast. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm um, chatting about a fear of flying. And um, she innocently said, oh, my God, I didn't know you had a fear of flying, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. That would be a terrible thing for a pilot to have. A fear of, I was like, that would be like a dentist having a fear of teeth. Um, and then she realised what she said and was like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. Don't say that on the podcast. I was well, like, I here it is. <laughs> Make her listen to it. You yeah. see, the good thing about podcasts is that they always stay there. It's not like they disappear yeah. somewhere in the back. And that's why. And mistakes recorded for life. <laughs> yes. Any last words? Because we're coming to the end. Um, no, no, it's fantastic um, having me on. Really appreciate it. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. Um, anyone listening this and liking it should listen back. There's some really, really interesting ones. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully I'll, you'll have me on again when I um, when I progress the fear of flying business. And, Absolutely. Uh, we'll talk about that book when it's out and how brilliant. people are reacting to it. 
Thank you so much for being on Most Memorable Journeys today. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. (laughs) Have a great year. Thank you, everybody. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.